Will Uber CEO Dara Kashahari's PR stunt over the weekend come back and actually bite him and his company in the ass? We'd hope so. Stick around for this week's episode of It's Machine Killed. friends and enemies. It's episode 82 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, I, I was doing a little digging around, you know, reading some more about Luddism, the history of Luddism, uh, you know, d- digging back a little bit further. Our, 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 our friend, uh, Brian Merchant, was telling me about this, uh, this d- historian named Adrian Randall, um, who wrote a bunch of really interesting stuff in the 80s and like in the early 90s, uh, looking at the history of Luddism. So I was like learning a bunch of stuff. And I, I, I discovered that uh, one of the machines that the original Luddites targeted for smashing was called the gig mill. I mean, <laughs> it's like a it was a machine used in uh, in, in textile manufacturing. But when I saw that, I was I was hooting and hollering. Y'all. Yeah. I was like, damn, how fucking appropriate that the Luddites uh, in 1811 were smashing the gig mill and the Luddites of 2021 are also trying to smash the gig mills. <laughs> I mean, that that's that's that kind of synchronicity that, you know, that makes me think there's an intelligent designer out there setting this pathway for us. General Ludd is looking down from the his celestial throne. <laughs> Trying to help us get to the uh, future he so bo- he or they boldly envisioned for the rest of us. Yeah, I see it. Mm-hmm. I think so. I, I think that whoever's doing Good Lord Bird should do a miniseries based on Ned Lug in the same style. And then uh, there can be a John Brown Ned Ludd crossover, and uh, it can be like yeah. another Bill and Ted movie. You know, they can just hop in a time machine, going through time, just fucking shit up. <laughs> I'd, I'd go to the, actually go to a theater and see that. Man, we doing the John Brown Ned Ludd crossover right here on TMK. That's what this podcast is. It is. <laughs> uh, Bill and Ted, John and Ned's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh, man. Yeah, so that that was just like some really interesting synchronicity there that uh, we got gig mills terrorizing workers uh, 200 years ago, and we got gig mills, a.k.a. Uber, Deliveroo, etc., terrorizing workers today it's great but, it's fun it's lovely it's good family friendly fun that everybody can get take a part of <laughs> oh man but but you know the gig meals I, I mean i guess it all comes down to your perspective you know if we right. if we if we look at dara kosrashahi's uh latest pr stunt the gig meals are actually fun you saw him he was smiling he was on his bike you know, you want to give us a little lowdown on on Dara's latest PR bullshit? Yeah, let me pull this up because I think that um, I want to have the image in front of me so I can stew a little bit more about it. But basically, mm-hmm. what uh, Dara did is, you know, 
you tweet out, spend a few hours delivering for Uber Eats. One, SF is absolutely beautiful town. Two, restaurant workers were incredibly nice every time. Three, it was busy. Three hours, 24 minutes spent delivering out of three hours, 30 minutes online. Four, I'm hungry, time to order some, and then a bunch of emojis for McDonald's and the beer. And, you know, uh, he said, oh, I did, you know, 10 trips, $98.91. So this is clearly a good bit. This is clearly a good thing, right? Leaves out a few things, right? I mean, it's obviously a PR stunt, right? It's obviously like one thing, one day, you know, of three hours of trips, basically. It also leaves out the fact that, you know, as I think Jason, uh, Jason pointed out, you know, we had Jason on the other week um, and Jason on Twitter said something along the lines like it's it's highly unlikely that Dara would do this. And the PR stunt, which it obviously is, also didn't shield him from the worst outcomes. Right. Tip baiting being like a pretty prominent example. Right. Or just having a pretty shitty experience with a customer because you're late or the restaurant got something wrong or in one way or another you get blamed, right? There's also the fact that, you know, I think also, you know, Paris pointed this out in the tweet, right? Um, Dar did this for a day. There are people who do this every single day to make ends meet, to feed their family and pay the bills on just the Uber Eats earning alone, right? And he'll, of course, retort as Uber always does retort, this is supposed to be a side hustle for money. Right. But as earlier, like FTC fines for Uber ride hailing reveal, right. And earlier promotional materials, that's not how they pitched it to people. And that's low. That's not like at the end of the day, that is the bullshit rationale that they offer to people. But the real messaging, the implicit messaging is that you can make enough money here to make ends meet if you're smart about it, if you hustle about it. And there's a few other things, you know, there's the fact that he talks about online, right? Trying to distinguish Uber Eats as a digital gig as opposed to a a traditional job, right? Uh, And there's also this big debate about we need to pay drivers, for their time and, uh, and couriers for the time spent on the app, right? Because a lot of it is uh, deadhead and waiting mm-hmm. and, and going in between trips. And Dara's like, oh, I only spent six minutes, you know, without an order. Yeah. Okay. That's not representative of almost every single study we've ever had analyzing deadhead. Deadhead is when you travel from point A to point B without an order, right? Because you are unpaid. You're off the clock, right? So I get an order. I drop someone off, Right. Or I drop a uh, order off, um, and then I don't have a new assignment, new piece of work uh, handed to me, and so I'm riding around empty for unpaid time, waiting for the app to assign me something else. That's why a lot of drivers in busy metro areas have multiple apps installed, right, mm-hmm. so that they can get constantly be fed orders because they spend at least a third of all their time without any sort of, you know, income. Right. So there's a lot of slide in slide of hands here that are going on, a lot of weird moves that are going on, too, um, that I think when you see this, you should just remember it's a, it's, you know, this company is bullshit. It's bullshit on top of bullshit on top of bullshit. And it spent 12 years honing the PR game. And Dara is just like the new face of it mm-hmm. pretty much. Yeah. You know, people were asking them on Twitter for a detailed breakdown, you know, beyond this little oh, screenshot. And, never and, will get it. <laughs> you know, well, he did say, he did say oh, that, he, okay. that he actually worked for five and a half hours in total and earned $106.71, um, according to uh, the Independent, um, you know, reported on this. 
which they which calculates out to being uh, just over nineteen dollars an hour. San Francisco's mm-hmm. minimum wage is just over sixteen dollars an hour. Yeah. So, fucking bozo in like in this like <laughs> lab laboratory like environment perfect which i'm sure is a perfectly choreographed pr stunt the ideal working conditions and circumstances still earned just over minimum wage uh you know riding on the app interesting there's uh i'm looking at the detail he gives so he has a trip at 11:51 a.m. then another at 12:27 p.m. Then another at 1.13 p.m., then another at 4.40 p.m., then another at 5.30 p.m., then another at 5.35 p.m. I'm sure if someone does the math on this, uh, the three hours and 24 minutes out of three uh, spent. Yeah, this is like over. This is about five and a half hours. Right. And then a break in between. But that's this all suggests like logging in and out of the app incessantly. Right. Mm hmm. And also, it's the bit distance. You know, that would be the only way you'd be able to do that. I mean, I'm I'm looking back through my trip stuff when I when I worked for Uber, and mm-hmm. I guarantee you, he probably had a dedicated team that was feeding him trips. But also at the same time, like if he did that many trips for that little money, he was probably accepting everything that came across, which from what I understand currently is nothing but a bunch of fast food orders and without any tips on them. Yeah. And also that's the thing, right? Like most of this is probably tips, right? I think it's safe to assume that most of us is tips. And then most of those, most of those are tips. Like I, like I said, I've looked through there and there have been times where uh, customers paid like $9 without tip, just like for fees and everything. And the driver gets three bucks and Uber gets $6 and then they don't tip shit because they just paid nine bucks for the service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I think I've been seeing some other stuff from people like people pointing out, okay, like, okay. Dara said there were 10 deliveries, right? He only showed six in the breakdown. So the breakdown he showed was six across five and a half hours. There, We don't see the last four. Also, the total doesn't really match up, right? He said that he it came out to $106.71, but the order total he gave, or he said that he earned was $98.91, right? Okay, so, you know, who knows? Who knows? Not like we'll ever get a, a clean answer for this. He probably got 100% of everything that he made, you know, because even though those uh, fees go paid to Uber, he's going to get that money in his pocket <laughs> in the long run anyway. Yeah, and we'll, we'll never get a clean answer because it's not meant to be a clean thing to have an answer for, right? It's like it is it is totally a PR stuff. I, I, I think, yeah, for me, the most interesting thing was like, you know, you, you calculate the amount that he earned and it, it, it's just over, you know, it's over minimum wage. And that's not an accident. Like you think he would have posted that if there was no way to to cook the books where he was earning less than minimum wage. Like he, like part of this is to show, oh no, like drivers do actually like they earn three dollars over minimum wage, right? Like that's like that's so good. You know, you can earn more working for uh, for Uber than you can working in the Amazon warehouse. They're only going to pay you $15 for, for grueling, dangerous, thankless work. You can come work for us and do grueling, dangerous, thankless work for, for $19. You know, and then there's a huge ass uh, asterisk that said, you know, imperfect choreographed lab like conditions. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, and that's how it always is. All this stuff is pretty. I mean, if, if something's being presented to the public, it's usually being stage managed. Right. 
I mean, if you, but also too, if you factor in the fact, I don't, I, I saw they was probably riding a bike, but most Uber, most Uber delivery couriers aren't riding bikes; they're driving. So, right. if you factor in gas mileage, all the wear and tear on your vehicle, like I had it figured out that if I went out and I worked and I didn't make at least two hundred dollars, that I didn't break even, right. just just on the wear and tear and the gas alone. Right, and there's no way you can make. $200 working for, for a whole day, right? Like, like that's going to be an exceedingly rare circumstance. You're, and you're going to put miles on your car and you're going to drive all over the place and you're going to have to accept every single order that comes across your board. When I did it, I was selective. I only took the orders that made sense. So like nothing more than five miles and I didn't accept anything under 12 bucks. Mm. Oh, you think you're smarter than Uber's algorithm, Jeremy? You think you know better than Uber's algorithm? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I don't claim to be smarter than al- their algorithm, but I can tell you one thing for sure. I'm a lot more stubborn than they are. I think all this is a is a way for you know in this episode it's been a, it's been a hot minute since we've really talked about the gig economy in any kind of uh, serious way. And Ed, you recently had a really fucking amazing the motherboard guide to the gig economy that you wrote, which like just gives us a whole a whole lexicon like a dictionary um, for how to understand the different terms, uh, the different ideas, like the language that they use, right? Because so much of like what Dara is doing here as well is like, you know, it's a big PR stunt, but a lot of the language that has even like leaked into our everyday way of talking about this shit also is like PR shit, right? Like it's coming, it comes from the, the companies themselves in terms of like how we understand, you know, the gig economy, right? What used to be called the sharing economy, right? Like how we understand the role of platforms or the role of venture capital, right? Like so much of this is just, a, you know, it's a lot of propaganda, Right. I mean, it is a lot of propaganda. There's a lot of sleight of hand consciously uh, all the time because there's a lot of information asymmetries, right? There's a lot of stuff that we don't know. We're never going to get to know about these companies unless someone inside of them leaks, um, which you should if you work at these companies. Um, So unless someone inside of these companies leaks or unless like someone goes rogue or unless like we get uh, regulations that force them to give up more data than they sh- than they would, ideally. Uh, there's a lot of information that we don't know, and that's huge golf for them to take advantage of uh, public discourse, of propaganda, of PR campaigns, of misinformation, of sleight of hand, in one way or another. You know, taking advantage of you know whatever they can find out there that's already existing in the muddled, really fucked up and confused topography we have for politics and economics and social uh, policies in this country um, and use it for their own ends, right? So here in the United States, right? You know, I wrote this guide because I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of talk, most of how we, a lot of the way that we still talk about these companies, right? A decade later and like three, four years into like a wave of critical reporting about it outside of labor reporting is, um, is still using their PR terms, right? Still giving them benefit of the doubt in one way or another that uh, they are mis- they're not 
misclassifying the workers, right? That the workers are independent contractors, but now there's a legal there's a legal movement to reclassify them, or that they don't pay subminimum wages, right? Or that their work is that gig work is something new and different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or that the gig economy is this discrete, um, separate part of the economy, and it's not actually just like the reinvention of piecework, right? It's not just the reinvention of and, and piecework being, I think, um, you know, Vina Dubois wrote this amazing essay um, laying this out uh, for dissent uh, called Digital Piecework, which you should read if you haven't already, right? And the argument there is pretty simple. Uh, piecework is an old form of work uh, that really is about inst- like maximizing the amount of work that any individual person does, maximizing their production while minimizing the amount of money you have to pay them. Right. So, you know, Vina hones in on, you know, not early 20th century, late 19th century. U.S. industrialists, right, are exploiting women and housework to extend it further. Right. So garment manufacturers are now telling migrant workers, migrant women who are living in these crowded tenements. Right. That piecework is actually pleasure. Right. And that you should be paid by the piece of garment that you put in, not the hour or two hours or three hours that it takes for you to make it, right? And mm-hmm. so the piecework is pleasure, it's supplemental income, um, but in reality, you're working for 10 hours a day, right? Doing garment work at a significantly under um, value prices, right? And so, and that's on top of all the other unpaid domestic work that goes on, right? At rates that are, you know, abysmal compared to what, you know, that work would fetch if it were taking place in like a formal workplace. Right. Or if uh, women were employed in a formal workplace. Right. Mm-hmm. But piecework end of itself doesn't get made illegal, but it does get kind of pushed out by, you know, reforms in the in labor law brought in by the New Deal. Right. And by the standardization of the minimum wage. Right. It gets hard to with the minimum wage, hourly wages become like the new regime instead of, you know, having room to pay people by the piece. Mm-hmm. And so. Silicon Valley has done something ingenious, right? By doing regulatory arbitrage, by doing, uh, you know, uh, in, incessant amounts of lobbying and propaganda that we'll talk about to convince, reconvince the public that piecework is good. It's liberatory. It's, in, it's, uh, it's pleasurable, right? You have Turk platforms, right? Uh, like the Amazon Mechanical Turk, where you're helping train like uh, Skynet, um, dumb Skynet uh, to recognize images or to do small tasks. You have Uber and Lyft where you are getting paid for you know trips per trips and not the time they actually spent working on the platform. And all of this, even though there's widespread poverty among the workers, widespread mental health crises or my, uh, widespread you know precarity uh, are constantly signaled by these companies as sources of liberatory um, pleasure of source, uh, sites of freedom, right, mm-hmm. for everyone, uh, engines of opportunity and economic mobility. And so, um, you know, the guy comes out of like a, my personal frustration with that. I mean, not that it in, it in of itself is going to change anything, but at least like having a resource that compiles a lot of these terms together. And because I saw a similar guide by a uh, staff writer at uh, MIT Tech Review, uh, Karen Howe, um, mm. on AI ethics, right, and how... In the tech industry, a lot of times when people start speaking in language of ethics, they're really trying to externalize uh, cost of their immoral and harmful systems, right? 
and mm-hmm. minimize responsibility and accountability or minimize responsibility, minimize accountability, uh, minimize barriers to doing what they wanted to do in the first place. Right. You create an ethics lab at Google that their goal, right, is to create research that, you know, will maybe advance ethical frameworks, but not challenge, as we saw with like, you know, Google firing their lead AI researcher. Um, it will not challenge like core aspects of their business model, like large language uh, processing, like large language models for processing and simulating understanding of, na- of natural language, right? Mm-hmm. So for here, the premise of it is just that, you know, language is important, right? That we call it that most of the words we're using are not words that we would have agreed to use, but they're words that we've been told to use and we've been taught to use and we just kind of end up using because, and like for good reason, because they've spent billions of dollars trying to um, get us to use those words. Because if you use those words, then you can't make certain critiques or you can't pursue certain political uh, projects or social projects, right? Because the terms limit the imagination or limit the image that gets conjured up when you think of the gig economy, when you think of ride hailing, when you think of gig work, when you think of what these jobs should and shouldn't be, or if they're jobs to begin with. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why uh, someone like Dara can do this like PR stunt is because it's really hard to challenge their claims, right? Because, you know, like you were saying, uh, you know, they commission all these studies from friendly, quote unquote, independent researchers who are going to, you know, be given granted access to like proprietary data from the company that they can then study. Um, But they're only going to be granted access to that uh, if the company is assured that the study is going to look good, that the study is going to make the company look good, that it's going to tow the company line. This kind of influence can happen in a lot of different ways as well, right? Like there can be a, you know, there can be some direct oversight and overview, which is like what we saw with Google, right? With the the Google uh, AI ethics team, um, you know, the ousting of people like uh, Timnit and Michelle, right? Like, you know, the the ousting there of like, they didn't tow the company line. And so they, they you know, they got the backlash for it, right? I mean, even like, you know, there's report of, you know, internal researchers at these companies that are supposed to supposedly have, you know, the these internal ethics uh, teams or these like, you know, internal red teams, right? Like the the, the idea that you, uh, that you have critics within your company who can kind of red team these things, who can be a friendly adversary to kind of keep you in the loop of like, you know, what might you be doing that's questionable? But as we see, a lot of that shit is neutered um, when, you know, for example, Google now uh, uh, requires like sensitive topic review of all research that could potentially broach something like uh, facial recognition um, or something like, you know, uh, the, the environmental cost of large language uh, models, you know, and who does that sensitive topics review? It's not other scientists doing like, you know, rigorous uh, peer review. It's, it's the lawyers, it's the PR people in the company. They're the ones who are doing that sensitive topics review, which really shows you what they care about. But then you can also have this like chilling effect with external researchers where, you know, they're, you know, Google or Uber or Facebook or whoever, you know, they've got their whole trove of proprietary data, which if you had access to that and could study it, 
could reveal a lot, reveal a lot about the company, but also reveal a lot about uh, various social phenomenon, right? Like the, the processes and operations of gig work, the processes and operations and consequences of misinformation on Facebook, you know, whatever, right? Like some really valuable studies can be done with that, but they're not going to hand that data out to anybody, right? They're going to hand that data out to people and, and, and a very limited uh, set of that data um, out to, to researchers who they know aren't going, are, are, are going to reproduce the company's values, uh, reproduce the company's interests, or at the very least not challenge the company's uh, reputation, not challenge the company's interest. Uh, you know, and th- this, is a, this is a way of using like scientific studies and supposedly like, you know, critical um, studies of these companies to launder their reputation and, and keep that propaganda machine going. And it's and it's gonna keep going until the things until like you know we actually decide to get rid of this until we decide to get rid of the gig economy overall you know and I've been thinking about I've been rereading this essay by um, Evgeny Morozov the Taming of Tech Criticism um, where he talks mm-hmm. about you know tech criticism without a goal of social transformation is useless because without a project of social transformation. And this is analogous to what we've been looking at with Winner, right? But um, without a radical project of social transformation, all you're doing is you're just looking at the world and saying, I'm going to talk about the technical world or the technological world, as if like technologies are not end results of social, historical, political, cultural interactions, right? And mm-hmm. here, right, we want to always remember the goal, especially when we do this stuff, right? And when I do stuff or when anyone does this stuff, right? Uber is a fucking awful company for a host of reasons, right? And the goal of the of, of in, in introducing people to the propaganda and the working conditions is not to do what a lot of commentators did for a long time, which is like, if only the consumer knew better, then the consumer would do better, right? Mm-hmm. It's to, to help furnish an alternative, which is like, what if we just did not use ride hail? Or if, what if we did not have a transit system that relied on ride hail as a plug for gaps in it without also creating, an, and also because there is no adequate social safety net so that people end up relying on these jobs, even though they're un, they don't put them with dignity, they don't provide them with security, they don't provide them with control over their own lives or mental health or stability in any way, shape or form, right? And, and that is like always, I think, the goal in all of our work, right? Especially whenever I'm writing about the, the gig economy, right? How do we think through like what an alternative looks like, right? I mean, like gig work in of itself, I think like I open it up with talking about the gig work, right? Gig work is typically thought of as a new type of work, right? It's a new type of work, but it's really just in one way or another, it's piecework. It's been reskinned. And then there's also been a secondary operation, a more subtle one, which is an attempt to conflate the gig work with independent contracting, right? Mm-hmm. Because independent contracting does exist. Independent contracting, there are, there are jobs that are independent contractors, whether it is like some, you know, a, a tradesman, right, that may come in and do a particular service for a short amount of time. You know, that's a trade, right? That's a that's an independent contractor. Gig workers are not doing that though, right? Because gig workers, the work that gig workers are doing is piecework deployed by a company so that it doesn't have to abide by labor laws, right? So that it can then satisfy venture capitalists, so that it can satisfy investors, so that it can realize a profit eventually or a monopoly. Like when we just focus on the technological, we think gig work is unique because it's happening largely with these tech companies, 
And when, but if you zoom out and we look at the non-technological, you see that gig work is specifically being used by these tech companies because they're otherwise unprofitable thanks to the legal framework, right? So they're using a mix of tech, technological, non-technological uh, methods to achieve what a capitalist institution is trying to do, which is like make a profit. So what they're going to do is they, they're deploying technologies that will allow them to exploit loopholes in antitrust and labor law that will allow them to reduce the amount of money they have to pay their workers so that they can build up enough of, of market share so that they can crush the competition, raise prices, and crowd everyone out, right? But mm -hmm. the, the explanation we get when we look solely at the technological is, uh, is shallow. It's very shallow, and you can't do a real – you can't really understand gig work, right? Gig work is not just – um, it's not, it's not simply just like a re reskinning. It's also part of like an effort by these companies that are taking advantage of the financialization of the American economy to try and make themselves permanent, stable fixtures of the market. And, you know, as you lay out in your piece as well, they put forth all these, uh, all these, like all these visions and all these, uh, aspirations of how this will actually work. And it never works that way. But like what I found really interesting here as well is, you know, Dara, you know, with his PR stuff, he didn't call it this, but functionally the way it worked for him was he fulfilled the dream of the perpetual ride, right? Uh, you know, because according to his tweet, he only had six minutes of downtime out of three and a half hours of work. That's, you know, that that's this perpetual ride. Tell us a little bit about the perpetual ride and this dream of, of how this stuff should work. You know, if it, I guess if you have the whole uh, choreograph uh, of the company behind you, ensuring that your ideal working conditions mirror this aspiration of the perpetual ride, um, which, you know, is something that is unrealistic and can never actually right. come about. But what, what is the perpetual ride? Uh, it's a bus, right? <laughs> it's a privatized bus. But uh, so initially, the perpetual ride was a pretty clever PR move that these companies adopted, right? Um, the idea was uh, your own private bus without the hang up of having to go to other people's stops, right? Because the whole problem with a bus is that you get on the bus and you go and then it goes to other places that you don't want to go. And then it drops you off at a place that's not exactly where you live, but it's close enough that that's where you're going to get off. You know, it's it's not it's not catered enough to you. So what if you had a bus that still went where everybody wanted it to go, but only when they're in the car? Right. So if mm -hmm. you're in the car, it goes where you go, pick someone up who needs to go there from there, and then they go where they need to go, drops them off, pick someone up. Of course, it doesn't exist, right? It doesn't exist for a lot of reasons, right? One is that that's not how ride-hail demand works, right? <laughs> that yeah. where drivers are not dropping off. Most A lot of times, drivers are not dropping off or you know, a good chunk of rides are not dropping people off at some place where immediately after someone is going to pick them, uh, come for them in the same spot. There's always going to be deadhead. There's almost always deadhead, right? In one way or another, as part of a driver's uh, day, like a third of their day is always just deadhead, whether that's a few seconds without a passenger, whether that's a few minutes or an hour without a passenger, right? And then there's, it's also a weird assumption. The idea uh, like embedded in there is that uh, the public bus, right, is inefficient because it doesn't get you where it needs to. And it's, and you can, you can pay a little bit more 
but you're pocketing savings in terms of time, in terms of convenience. I mean, this is a similar argument to what Amazon made in its uh, letter to the shareholders or owners, whatever they called them, mm-hmm. um, where it said that, you know, Amazon may, Amazon is yielding un, immeasurable savings in terms of time because you don't actually have to park at a parking lot, then walk mm. to a store, then browse in the store. Instead, you just go and you click on your website, right? And so similarly, Uber and Lyft and all these gig, uh, these gig economy ride hail operations, these taxi companies were like, you know, we are, um, we're going to create a bus that's more efficient, the public version. Right. And we're going to do it because we're a technology company, because we're a corporate, we're a private sector firms already or have a leg up on the public sector, but we're also a technology firm. So we'll be able to, you know, we have some special sauce that we're going to put into the app that will make it happen. Of course, it never happened and they just stopped talking about it. Right. But that, that idea, the ethos that, uh, that is, a, is, that's an early look at the sort of, uh, just like the hype, right? The idea that if you have a technology service, if you have a technology firm, if you have an app, it can, for some reason, solve an otherwise intractable or uh, social problem or a problem that's not really a problem, but it is when you reframe it differently. It's not really a problem that buses don't go where you need to go, right? That's actually why they work. But if you reframe it, that's actually a huge problem because it prevents the market from unleashing the efficiency and it prevents you from getting where you need to go because you have all these things that you need to do, right? So just pay us to privatize that transaction and get you where you need to go. It's a it's a weird tension that they draw, you know, and it's a, it's a libertarian tension um, that they try mm-hmm. to draw between like the bus is is bad because it's it's a fundamentally public and collective institution. Like it's a it's not only the way that's funded right as a, as a public service. Um, but it's collective in the sense of, uh, you know, it's not personalized to you. It's meant mm-hmm. to serve, you know, the the community as a whole. And so the, the way that it operates is community oriented, not not you oriented. Um, and they, but what they try to do is, you know, like good libertarians, it's all about me, me, me. Right. Well, I don't I don't care about the we I care about the me. Uh, right. And so like this idea of a perpetual ride or the very idea of how something like Uber ride hailing, you know, food delivery, um, all of these on demand services are meant to happen is a is a is a hyper individualized um, and personalized to your convenience way of doing it. But there's fundamentally a tension there as well, because what, what that means is that, you know, for for all of that individual personalization to happen, it still does require a very large we. Um, it requires an infrastructure of, uh, you know, not only a technological infrastructure of transportation and logistics, um, but a, but a, a, a infrastructure of misery, of human misery, right? A lot of workers working really hard to give you a little bit of that convenience. Um, and then, you know, as we've talked about before, but as we will talk about again and again, because it's so fundamentally a feature of capitalism in general and digital capitalism in particular, is the uh, the alienation of all that labor that goes into this like service, um, you know, and, and hidden away from you, hidden behind an app. Right. That it's that it's that Potemkin AI shit. Right. Where it's like, mm-hmm. um, oh, no, this is this is just an app. It's, you know, pay no attention to the to the army, the reserve army of labor um, that makes that app work. But, you know, because capitalism is riddled with these contradictions, eventually they come to a head. And I've, I, I think and, and, you know, I'm, you know, I, I think we are reaching a point and, and everything you've just laid out has really is really crystallizing this in my mind 
that, uh, you know, fundamentally what is wrong with the gig economy and why I think people are starting to kind of push back against it, why Dara and them are having to roll out these like massive PR campaigns, why, um, you know, even the New York Times and, you know, we'll, we'll get to this. It's like fretting about the end of the millennial lifestyle subsidy um, is because I think that we are reaching this point of the contradiction is becoming a crisis. You can no longer ignore that contradiction that makes these on-demand, convenient, personalized, individualized services work. Um, you cannot ignore all of the uh, the infrastructure of human misery uh, required to make that work, right? It's fundamentally unsustainable. Then it becomes the goal of the company to then, like, you have that tension that you talked about, right? It, it, it manifests in all sorts of ways. It's untenable, so how do you prevent the public from realizing it. And then how do you make the investors real, uh, prevent them from realizing it? And how do you also prevent regulators from realizing it? Well, there are different ways to do it for different groups and they're not all, they don't neatly overlap, right? The way for you to prevent consumers from recognizing it is to throw subsidies at them. But that's not the way that you get investors to recognize it because then you're going to be bleeding more money. And then that's not, also not the way that you would want regulators to look at it, right? Because if you're bleeding money into subsidizing and to, and to doing PR propaganda that may raise inquiries, right? So it's, it's, you know, it's constant juggling on their part, but I think the goal for them is worth it, right? Because the goal is take advantage of the financialization of this country and get a piece of that pie, right? Get a piece of the, the trillions of dollars that are slushing around waiting to be uh, burned, right? Into nothing in particular uh, by offering um, a service that is unworkable, untenable, unsustainable, but is pretty easy to tell a story about, right? Because it's a technology company, right? You don't really like for years. I think one thing I hit on in the guide is for, for years, Amazon was the big narrative framework that Uber operated with. We are going to be the Amazon of transportation. Okay. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Uh, Uber would say, okay, look, Amazon lost money all the time, historic losses in the company. And that, and Uber is generating even bigger losses because we're going to be even bigger than Amazon, right? Because we're going to be the Amazon of transportation. We're going to, we're investing so much money into, into new businesses that are going to go driverless, that are going to go international, that are going to go in the air, right? That are going to go anywhere you need them to be multiple modes of transportation, scooters, right? Uh, couriers, um, helicopters, and you know all this shit. We're gonna do all that, so we can't we can't be cash positive because that would imply we're not spending, we're not investing in the future, and so that's why you're never gonna see a profit. But leaves out a key detail: Amazon was cash positive that whole time. It was just reinvesting the money, mm -hmm. the profits into its own business. Amazon never, in its entire history, made losses like Uber. Right? It it may have spent additional profits into its company so they could grow and accelerate it, but it never had losses like Uber. But of course, that didn't stop that narrative from being entertained by most of the people covering it or being, and then prevent most people from falling in love with that narrative, right? I mean, I even remember after the the IPO, there was a narrative Uber was pushing, say they wanted to be the operating system of your city, right? What the mm -hmm. fuck does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? It's what the idea that a company whose whole premise is to subsidize rides so that one day no one else is around 
and then jack it up. I don't want that as the operating system of my city. The operating system idea was that it was going to have scooters, bikes, uh, cars, flying cars, driverless cars, um, deliveries. Uh, it was going to have on-demand labor, staffing, trucking, all this shit. Well, it sold off almost all of that. So, okay, that narrative died, as did the Amazon of transportation, as did driverless, right? As has every single narrative. And I think sometimes it's tempting to say that the reason why these narratives keep dying is solely because of the sell-off. They keep dying because that's the point. The narratives are not actually real visions that the company has. And if they are, then they're delusional, right? The visions serve a purpose at a particular phase of development or a particular phase of the business strategy to provide cover from whatever group is a threat, right? Or whatever group is eliciting more scrutiny of the company than should be, right? These narratives are usually not congruous, right? They're usually, they usually don't overlap, but they do fit perfectly for the phase of, the, uh, of Uber, Right. Or the development of Uber at that time. You need people to stop asking about the losses. You say you're an Amazon. Okay. Stop saying you're an Amazon, but the losses persist. You say that you're going to be an operating system so that people stop asking about you because it invokes the image of the public sector, which, you know, doesn't earn money on people really. You know, the public sector is, uh, is, is supposed to be spending the money so that it can subsidize the lives of people in, in this sort of rhetoric and this sort of neoliberal logic. So if you say the OS of a city, you're both combining the sleek image or invoking a sleek image of digital and technological appliance and then also the image of like a public support system, right? That isn't concerned with money. It's concerned with helping. And like, mm-hmm. this is, okay, so that narrative dies out. So then what is it now that Uber is serious now because Uber sold off everything? Okay, if Uber is serious now, then what the fuck were the past 12 years for, right? But that's the thing that each new narrative, if you try to compare it to the last one, you your head starts to hurt and then you realize that's the point, right? You're not supposed to you're not supposed to look at them all at once. You're supposed to move on to the next one. And everyone's supposed to abandon it and not think about why this company spent one year, five years, 10 years, 12 years saying this thing that clearly wasn't sure and that it abandoned at the drop of a hat. We have to keep beating this home as well because the propaganda has 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 really you know uh, entrenched itself in a, in a lot of in a lot of uh, sectors, a lot of people's brains um, to the point where you know like you know everything we've just laid out, right? Like the fundamentals that these companies are non-existent, right? These companies are just fucking pipe dreams. They are, as Wendy called it, right, like sandcastles in the sky. It's just a bunch of fucking vibes and vaporware. But at the same time, they they are constantly held up as a model to be emulated. Yeah, I was just talking to a friend of mine who's an academic, and uh, uh, they were in this mandated uh, industry engagement professional development class that you know, because universities now are just fucking like uh, you know, they're they're just like 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 private equity firms with that that also happen to teach classes on the side, right? <laughs> like like the universities have right. become fully financialized and fully like corporatized and consultantized um, in their in their language and their outlook. So like, you know, academics are routinely forced to take these like, you know, prof- industry engagement, professional development classes. But my friend was telling me that uh, in this class, um, they were being presented or told um, that Airbnb and Uber are great examples of innovative solutions to problems. Um, That's and right. That, 
and that we as academics uh, need to mimic them uh, and take inspiration by them uh, in order to find ways to, quote, unlock the value in our research, right? That, Sponsored that, by Uber. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Like, like it just shows how uh, insidious that language of, of Uber and Airbnb, you know, the Uber for research, the, you know, uh, like Airbnb, but for research, like, or whatever, like, has become mm. so ubiquitous. But at the same time, it's so fucking hollow. I told my friend, I was like, you need to raise your hand and ask them to define unlock the and value, right? Like, <laughs> like, I, need a, I need a solid definition for all three of those words in that phrase because like, no. you know, holding up Airbnb and Uber as the metric for success makes no sense when, you know, the, they, they love talking about value, but they also have no theory of value or valuation, Right. Like they have no idea how to they have no idea what value is or how to do valuation. Um, and it, it made me think as well about like my work on, um, you know, Internet of Landlords, you know, looking at platforms and shit as rentier capitalism and drawing on some work by the geographer and political economist Brett Christopher's. Right. Like there are some really interesting parallels here between the, the methods of these these rentier platforms um, and the, uh, the, the quote-unquote voodoo economics um, of property value and financial capital. Uh, as, you know, as, as, as Brett Christopher talks about, you know, the economists and investors that he profiled in this academic article he wrote uh, attempt to use this kind of like financial mystification, quote-unquote, to like conjure value by turning real, real estate assets um, quote, from dead or dormant into live capital and by realizing value that is perceived to be in but not yet of property. You know, and, and, and it's this voodoo economics because they're like trying to conjure value out of nothing, right? They're like, you know, like every whole... Every human has a soul where, every, well, well, every property has value and you just have to unlock that value. You have to find that potential. You have to make it mm -hmm. real. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the, the rentier platforms like Uber and Airbnb, uh, you know, they, they try to do the same thing, right? In their attempt to um, activate the value in and extract rents from what they deem to be unproductive or uncommodified assets, right? Things like uh, the, the front seat in your car, that's an unproductive uh, asset, right? You could be making that productive by having a McDonald's meal um, in, the, in the seat there or, or, or having a, a passenger's ass in the seat, right? Um, or, or like your couch. Your couch is uncommodified, right? You should be putting that shit on Airbnb um, no. so you can be charging people rent to sleep on you that couch. Rent? Who's sleeping on the couch when you're sleeping in your bed? Nobody. That's money yeah. out the door. That's unlocked. That that's value that has not been unlocked yet. <laughs> if you're listening to this, I want you to look around your room, whatever room you're in. Maybe you're in your bedroom. Maybe you're in your bathroom. Maybe you're in your living room. All right. Maybe you're in someone else's place. I don't know. Maybe you're walking. Look at how much space is unoccupied. Someone is not paying for it. That's money on the table. If you yeah. want, you want to know why there's a COVID recession. It's because we're not we're not privatizing everything. We're not recycling all these assets in front of us and using them to help everybody get you know a little boost in the arm for uh, for stimulus spending. Right? That's the real that's the real program that we need. We need to privatize everything for everybody. I'm glad that uh, Airbnb never recycled the old Mitch Hedberg joke. I bought a house. It's a two bedroom house, but I think it's up to me how many bedrooms there are. Don't you? 
<laughs> Fuck you, real estate lady. This bedroom has an oven in it. This bedroom has a lot of people sitting around watching TV. This bedroom's over in that guy's house. Sir, you got one of my bedrooms. Are you aware? Don't decorate it. <laughs> I could imagine just the, the horrible Airbnb like tie-in uh, commercial to that. Like, is mm-hmm. your is your kitchen earning you money right now? We'll turn it into a bedroom. But but that is, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think there are like some really bizarre parallels here. Like that is how real estate guys talk about this shit, right? Is like you're leaving money on the table. Right. Your kitchen is not, uh, un- you haven't unlocked the value in your kitchen. You know, you need to renovate, right? That's, that's the whole like voodoo economics of property value. And I think that this is how we have to understand, um, you know, these, these like, you know, X as a service type business models is they are just all based on voodoo economics, right? It's all, it's all voodoo valuation and voodoo value, but they have no theory of value, no theory of valuation. So they're constantly chasing this thing that they don't even know what it looks like, right? They, like, they're not even dogs chasing a car. And it's like, oh, I wouldn't, like, a fucking joker, right? I wouldn't know what to do if I caught it. They're like, they're just running. They don't even know what they're looking for. They don't know what they're chasing. They're doing the scavenger hunt with no idea what they're hunting for. You know, I think it's also another thing that bothers me so much about this, right, is that it really is a brazen I think like when you step back, I mean, part of it is brazen, right? They know they, they know these things. They have teams of people whose jobs are either to tell them these things or to come to conclusions that may or may not suggest these things, right? And if they don't, then I don't know what the fuck they're doing. Because like if I were running some one of these companies and I were some capitalist, I would rather know that it's like a money losing unsustainable regime so I can plan accordingly, right? You can plan a path to monopoly if you know that. But if you don't think that, then you're not, you're doomed, right? I don't know. But yeah, you know, like the the constant hunt, right? Or the constant push or the constant search for a new narrative is in some ways like, um, like a thoughtless thing, right? Where it's like, uh, we need to figure out something that latches on or signifies with the public. Maybe we'll do some group testing or some focus testing. Maybe we'll latch on to fast advertising campaigns or PR campaigns. I mean, one thing they did in the early days was to pretty much copy the Koch brothers uh, playbook that they used in the seventies and eighties to deregulate um, taxis in um, across or try to deregulate taxis across seven metro areas um, on the East and West coast and in Chicago, a little bit in the Midwest. Um, like, and it didn't and, work. And what, what the fuck do the Koch brothers care about the regulation <laughs> of taxi? <laughs> because, because if you deregulate them, then you can, you can bring in firms to uh, either own the fleets, right. Or to own the medallions behind them or to speculate on them. That's mm-hmm. all they care about. They don't really care about the laws. And that's also another thing with these, deep, you know, a lot of these firms, a lot of the investors, when they're playing with laws, they don't care. They don't actually care about the law except as a vehicle to capital accumulation, right? Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Grubhub, uh, these are all vehicles for capital accumulation and it should be understood as such, right? They're not productive enterprises, right? They're not new and innovative services. They're taking old forms of work to provide new forms of capital generation mm-hmm. in a period where there's pretty much little to no place to park your money and get good returns unless you're willing to burn a lot of it and maybe never see it again. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's a that brings me to uh, one of my favorite definitions you provide in your guide, which is for for venture capitalists. You say, "quote In the gig economy world, venture capital is a venture capital is a form of private equity whereby investors raise funds and wield them as a weapon to enter large markets, undercut competitors through predatory or anti-competitive uh, behavior, then profit later by raising prices or extracting monopoly rents." It's helpful to think of VCs as a group of capitalist central planners. Their entry into various markets will reorganize the operations and regulations at play, but also determine what direction technological development and resource allocation goes. I think that's I mean, that, that is a perfect uh, definition of what venture capital and venture capitalists actually is. I think it is also, it reveals, um, you know, talking about, you know, motherfuckers love talking about value and having no theory of valuation. What they do have, though, is um, uh, a kind of weaponized practice of accounting, right? Uh, that is something that these companies have become really good at, that these VCs have become really good at, is cooking the books, right? They're fucking, you know, five-star Michelin chefs up in this, you know, with, with their mm-hmm. accounting practices. And they're very, very uh, attentive and very, you know, innovative, dare I say, uh, in some of the ways in which they have, uh, they, they, they cook the books, the ways that they account for what is valuable, what is not valuable, um, the ways they account for things like data as well. You know, I'm reading this piece by uh, these academics, um, Birch, Cochran, and, and Ward, um, looking at data as an asset. And, and they're, you know, they, they dive into um, the, you know, the balance sheets of these companies. They're diving into the market statistics to try to understand how do, how do companies account for data, which is, you know, a, a form of property or a form of asset or capital that cannot legally be owned or accounted for, right? You mm-hmm. can't account for data in your, in your balance sheet. You don't actually own data in any kind of a legal way in terms of having yeah. property rights over it. So how do you account for that? And that's what these companies are constantly having to do, right? Through things like user engagement metrics, uh, you know, the, the kind of stuff that Dar is talking about in his PR, right? Like here's the, you know, uh, he, here, here's all the, you know, my six minutes of downtime, but I had three and a half hours of uptime. And how did I do time that? Time spent because engaged. Time spent engaged. Yeah, that that's. And how did I do that? Because uh, my the, my company's algorithm is so good. And why is my company's algorithm so good? Because we have all this data um, that we feed into it. Right. So like they have to figure out all these ways of accounting for 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 the value that they that they seemingly have, which also proves to show I mean, also, like, I'm in the midst of uh, listening to Truanon's long-ass three-part series on Tesla and Elon Musk. And, oh, yeah, it's good. It's a good series. And one of the things they keep driving home is that uh, it's all vibes and vaporware, right? Like, Like, what Elon Musk really cares about is the stock price, right? Because... Not, not about the actual company itself or producing or material outputs or whatever. It's the stock price. Um, that's where the value actually comes from. And, and all of that is just like, you know, reputation. All of that is, you know, uh, the prestige, right, of, of doing these magic tricks on stage or, or whatever, whatever. You know, it gets me thinking about all the other ways that they do and don't account for things couple days ago from the time we're recording there is a article in the um 
ABC, the Australian Broadcasting uh, Corporation or Commission, can't remember. <laughs> but in the, the Australian ABC, there was, a, there was an article about uh, a food delivery driver or, or uh, who, uh, you know, this, this person, Barack Dogan, um, who is a 30-year-old Turkish student uh, in Sydney, um, was working for Uber Eats and, uh, and, and, you know, riding an electric bike around Sydney, delivering food, and he was hit by a truck and killed. But Uber Eats does not recognize his death as a, uh, a death of a worker. So they don't account for that. But in addition to not accounting for his death as, you know, in their stats of workers who have been, who have been killed or injured, um, they're also using that as a way to deny any kind of uh, insurance claim for his family. And, and why, why are they doing that? And how, how are they doing that? Uh, you know, as, as this ABC piece puts it, it's 10 crucial minutes, right? They say, quote, not only was Mr. Dogan left off the list of fatalities by Uber, he also narrowly missed out on insurance cover. Uber each treats its riders as independent contractors rather than employees, which means they don't have access to the New South Wales state workers' compensation scheme. The company said in the parliamentary hearing, which was held about the, the state of the gig economy in Australia, um, that it was the first food delivery platform to introduce free insurance for its riders. Ooh, look at us, a big PR win. But uh, Mr. Dogan's insurance included a $400,000 death benefit to be paid to his family and funeral expense cover should he be killed at work. However, the insurance policy cover riders only when they are making a delivery and for 15 minutes after they complete a delivery or cancel a request. On April 2nd in 2020, Mr. Dogan logged on at 12.17 p.m. and remained online until his death. However, he had canceled his last order at 12.25 p.m., so he was only insured until, 20, uh, until 12.40 p.m., but he was hit by a truck 10 minutes later at 12.50 p.m. So Uber is saying he was not covered by our insurance because he was not working for us at the time of, of being hit and killed by this truck. This is another thing with piecework. I think this is also an underappreciated, or I guess it's underappreciated even though the larger ethos is appreciated, right? Carving up the day into times where you get assigned or don't get assigned work as your relationship to the employer is also a really good way of carving up liability, right? I mean, it's already, I mean, even for the time you, even if you get mauled, even if you get robbed, even if you get killed, even if you get assaulted, even if you get raped on the clock, right? These companies still have seemingly impervious liability shields that prevent them from wanting to or having to, in most instances, doing anything other than like a, a secret settlement or paltry settlement, right? I mean, you have firms like Uber that have internal uh, teams whose investigation teams whose main goal is to limit the company's liability when there's an, any sort of sex crime that goes on. You have uh, companies like uh, Airbnb, right, who have the same sort of thing going on. Um, but the but the carving up, especially in this instance, is like really insidious because you know um, you can okay. There have been times where, for example, drivers have had their car stolen after they've completed an order, right, and. When the PR fails and when public outrage gets hot, uh, intense enough, they step back, right? They didn't used to step back until like I think a wave of them began to happen where children were taken 
in the cars or children were in the cars. And so then they started to stop. So it's an arbitrary decision on their part, right? Because if that's the case, then it's as soon as you're off the clock, which is 30, as soon as the order is done. If your car gets robbed after that, then it's fine. There's no difference between a second after, a minute after, and 10 minutes after. But in this case, if they let a killing of a driver like that happen, that opens up, I think, a precedent that they don't want to. So they're going to take a hard stance on it and be like, no, 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 no. Pound sand. Yeah, yeah, no, that that I, and the liability issue is exactly right. right. That that is what that is at the base. That's what these companies care about is the liability, um, and and not wanting to pay out that insurance claim, right? It's that that is at base what they care. Not not the lives of of people that work for them slash don't technically work for them, right? <laughs> you know, that's not what they count. You're exactly right. Pound sand. And then I think you, you've you nailed it exactly. Ed. It's it's about the ways in which um, they drill down. And because of the, because they have the app and timestamps, you know, they can be so super precise about, you know, a person, about the time and space, right? Uh, uh, when someone was working, when they were not working, the location that they were, oh, they were not actually at the right location where they should have been. So, yeah. you know, uh, not so, our fault yeah, anyway, not, right? not our fault. Yeah. Um, it just shows as well, this precision, the amount of precision that they can have in the control over people's lives, the amount of precision they can have and how they account for people's lives the work they do, when that work counts as on the clock, when that work doesn't count as on the clock, you know, and that, that is, that is another one of these instances of just like a super intensification. You know, insurers have long uh, been in the business of uh, denying claims, right? That's, that's the business of an insurance company is to deny claim, um, not to pay out claims, but to find ways to deny claims. But now you know, and I think there is, you know, the, the fact that this is also tied up to that uh, employment insurance really shows as well these intersections here um, in risk assessment models, right? The ways in which, like, uh, you know, in, insurance companies are taking on, you know, digital technologies in the way that like Uber and them do um, to, to, you know, account for their practices. But at the same time, I think we are seeing this uh this this widespread universalization of insurance type risk assessment models and uh, and actuary actuarial accounting um, being incorporated into uh, the businesses of companies that are nominally not insurance companies. You know, it's really it's just really funny that like everybody's books except Uber's have to be clean, right? Everybody else has to be scrutinized to the exact you know, whatever arbitrary unit of measurement they want to make sure or to prove that there is no way, shape or form Uber, the company's liable. But if you started talking about like how Uber's uh, books and accounting numbers are a little fishy or maybe fishy is not the right word legally, how their their books are not constructed the way a fortright, honest, good faith business, if one exists, would structure their books, right? Um, then they got, then they have all this nonsense and excuses and reasoning about why that's actually the case. It's actually it's actually really important that they don't construct their books that way because they would give an impartial picture. They would scare investors and can't scare the investors. You can't give an impartial picture because their mission is whatever the new PR narrative is. You know? mm-hmm. I think also with this liability to, I think another thing that's also important is like, you know, we've talked on this a little bit and 
it's hard to get numbers for, but the va- the vast majority of Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Grubhub, Just Eat workers quit within a year. It's like an over, it's over 90% for each one of these places. Millions of people pass in and out of these firms, right? Imagine if, imagine what goes on for every single driver, how many of them have poor workplace conditions, have legitimate grievances and claims to some sort of uh, settlement, but never do them, right? Either because they just don't think they can, or they don't think they should, or they get shamed out of doing it, or they get tricked out of doing it, or had they right signed away. Millions of people every single year going in and out of this job that they'll probably never do again. And you suddenly have the precedent that people who get hurt on the job or just after they log out of the app, people who um, have something happen to them in any way, shape, or form related to the job, now are entitled to some sort of regress, you know, that would open the floodgates. So of course, that's going to be something they also fanatically fight against, right? Because like you said, liability is the issue, but also like these companies have enormous amount of liability exposure, risk exposure, because their business model demands that they burn through as many people as possible. So mm-hmm. that's also part of that actuarial push, right? The actuarial push is also to like try to curtail um, what they can be held accountable for, as is the terms of service agreements where they have you sign away your rights, right? So that by the time you enter this workplace, there's only a narrow amount of things that they could possibly be on the hook for, right? And they've also fine-tuned their arguments to ensure that they're on the hook for as minimal of them as possible. It's got me thinking as well. This reminds me of, you know, that that long New York Times piece on um, on Amazon and on churn um, and on the labor practices there. Uh, they had a they had a stat in there that was just you know, so, so revealing, but also just mind blowing to actually think about. Um, they say, quote, with the high churn, multiple current and former Amazon executives fear there simply will not be enough workers. In the more remote towns where Amazon based its early U.S. operations, it burned through local labor pools and needed to bust people in. Quote, six to seven people who apply equals one person showing up and actually doing work. Uh, Mr. Strope explained, who is uh, an insider there talking to the New York Times. Um, if Amazon is churning through its entire workforce once or twice a year, he said, quote, you need to have eight, nine, 10 million people apply each year. That's about 5% of the entire American workforce. You know, they, they are burning through, uh, they, they're strip mining the reserve army of labor, right? Yeah. They, I mean, they, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and this only makes sense to me um, in terms of uh, like, I mean, well, one, it just doesn't make any sense to me, right? I don't know. Like, it's hard to think about what that looks like in practice. You know, either companies like Amazon and Uber, right? These companies that have such massive churn, right? You, 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 you quote in your piece that at Uber, um, the last year we have data for, for churn suggests well over 95% of drivers left before the end of the year. Uh, you know, th- this for this level of churn and burn through the reserve, army of labor, either they think that labor, I mean, it portrays a view of labor as as resource and capital, not as people, right? But they either think of it um, as this like 
this infinitely renewable and sustainable resource that will just replenish itself faster than they can burn it, which, you know, capitalism has such a great track, uh, track record of, uh, of, of not burning through, you know, cheap available resources faster than they can replenish itself. Uh, you know, psych. Um, (laughs) (laughs) or, or so either they're doing this kind of like short termism, right. Of just like, you know, churn and burn, it's cheap, it's available. You know, people are literally lining up to throw their bodies into the machine. All right, like who oil. am I to stop them? Who am I to stop them? Um, or they think that they will innovate ways of not needing human labor or needing drastically fewer amounts of human labor, you know, through automation, for example, where, uh, you know, so they're, they're, they're strip mining the reserve army now um, in the hopes that in the near future, they innovate ways to no longer need that resource or need that capital. I mean, that's what Uber tried to do with autonomous vehicles, gave up on them dreams. Um, you know, that's what Amazon's trying to do with its push towards like robotics and automation and, and its factories. But I, I think those are also betraying, you know, some aspirations that are highly unlikely to come true um, in any in, in our lifetime, while at the same time they are behaving in a, in a way in this like, you know, it's not only a high burn rate of venture capital, but it's a high burn rate of human capital. And who will bear the, the brunt of those consequences? People, the workers will and already are. Just wait until Amazon figures out how to employ dogs to work in their warehouses. Oh, please, no. Well, you know, the upside of that is maybe people will actually, some people will actually get their heads out of their own asses and realize that Amazon is not such a great idea. Yeah, but I think also it's like, you know, it's like there's also, I think as long as we think about it on the consumer side, these companies win, right? You know, like Amazon is all too happy to have a debate or to have us think about ways to get the consumers to, to think through these things or to rise up or to stop using them, right? Because they're, they're working at a larger level, right? They're here taking advantage of towns. They're taking advantage of states. They're taking advantage of legal frameworks and the generally weak economy, right? To build up this narrative that they go, they're more than just like a, a, um, a place for consumers to go. They're also an employer, you know, mm-hmm. they're, uh, they're a, a, a pillar of the community. You know, they are an important lobbyist, you know, for minimum wage or blah, whatever the fuck they're saying. Uh, they're an important taxpayer, you know, even though they don't do that. Um, they're, you know, they are trying to play on one field, which I think is important, you know, because at the end of the day, we do need to kill. We do need to kill the consumer myth about convenience or you do need to convince people they don't need to be things to be convenient. Right. We don't need one day, two day shipping. Right. Those things should low key be illegal unless like you, um, you know, unless there's like a disability or a real, you know, urgent need for it. And like there shouldn't be other forms of these, these goods, these services that rely on exploiting labor to provide them on demand. But we're not, that battles has to also be fought right at the same time as like, uh, how do we like chip away at the political economy that holds up Amazon? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe that is sending in like just... <laughs> oh, we can't we can't do that of course so Damn. 
that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of innovative thinking we need. And it's just a shame <laughs> that we can't say it for for, for for fear of liability on our part. Well, a lot of legal reasons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I do. I do want to. I do want to shout out to whomever uh, did this. But uh, in my neck of the woods, uh, recently someone stole an Amazon truck while a driver was out on a delivery, just topped in it because the driver, of course, left the engine running because, you know, the, they have so much pressure on these drivers to do, do, do so many deliveries in the day. So, of course, you're going to leave your, your truck running while you're running doing delivery. Well, someone hopped in, took it, took all the packages out, and then set that motherfucker on fire. <laughs> so I just want to sh- shout, shout out to them for, for practicing a little bit of sabotage. It might be a little bit, but it's something. <laughs> it's Every something. Counts. It's something. You know, yeah. Only you right. can sabotage Amazon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> only you can set Amazon on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Smokey the Bear is a Luddite, huh? What? <laughs> I should reiterate the uh, the company Amazon, not the the actual Amazon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't do that. They're already doing that. I like that you brought up that that essay by Evgeny Morozov from 2015. I haven't thought about that essay in a long ass time. I have to revisit that myself. But the taming of tech criticism in the Baffler, and I think it ends with a with a really nice a, a nice kind of concluding paragraph here about you know the purpose the purposes and not purpose of tech criticism. Right? What should tech criticism be aiming at? Um, you know, and he, he talks about how, uh, you know, he says, quote, in the past, it was political institutions, trade unions and leftist parties that workers had to thank for the limited breaks they got from work. Today, these tasks fall squarely on technology companies. The more Google knows about you, the more time you will save every day um, as it personalizes everything and even completes some task like retrieving your boarding passes on your behalf. Right, I just step in and say this is exactly what we talked about with like how Jeff Bezos frames it in the the letter to Amazon share owners as well. Right, we're say we're the ones saving you time and value every day, so you can unlock your true potential. Right, <laughs> <laughs> Evgeny uh, Morozov goes on to say, right at best. Uh, you know, the the project of a lot of tech critics might succeed in producing a different kind of Google, but its lack of ambitions is itself a testament to the sad state of politics today. It's primarily in the marketplace of technology providers, not in the political realm, that we seek solutions to our problems. A more humane Google is not necessarily a good thing, at least not as long as the project of humanizing it distracts us from the more fundamental political task at hand. Technology critics, however, do not care. Their job is to write about Google. And I think that, you know, I, I, like Morozov often does, he kind of he hits it on the head here, right? The point of um, doing, you know, real materialist analysis of extant material conditions um, and, you know, ruthless criticism of the existing material conditions, as, uh, as Marx puts it, as the job of good dialectical materialist and political economist, rather than, you know, that's, that, that must be our mission here, not to simply say, how do we make a more humanized Amazon? How do we humanize Uber? Right? It's like, no, 
No, no, no. Yeah, we don't need that. <laughs> the job here is to say, how do we get rid of this shit, right? Yes. How, do we, yeah. how, how do we understand its political and economic and social and environmental operations and cost so that we can then, when crises arise, take advantage of those crises? You know, you, as Milton Friedman said, as Rahm Emanuel said, uh, you never let good crisis go to waste, right? The neoliberals know that. That, that's the whole uh, philosophy of the shock doctrine. How do we do our own shock doctrine to Amazon and Uber, to the gig mills of today, right? Uh, how do we do that? We take inspiration from the Luddites of, of yesteryear who, in facing up against their own gig mills, didn't say, how do, I, how do I make this gig mill more humanized? Say, nah, man, I know how this gig mill works, and I know where the weak points are, and I know where to hit it with my hammer. And that's what, that's what our mission here needs to be. And that's the mission we will continue to drive home until it happens, <laughs> until it happens, right? So with that, uh, you know, I want to thank everybody for listening um, to your TMK for this week. You know, as, 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 yeah, as we try to, as we try every single week to bring this ruthless criticism of extant material conditions. Uh, and, and also we do that on our Patreon feed as well, which you can find at patreon.com slash this machine kills. You can get another, uh, a premium episode every single week. Um, and, you know, uh, very, very much in line with what we're talking about, you know, this week. Uh, our premium episode for, for this week is going to be part two of chapter five um, of autonomous technology, right? We had to break that baby up into two episodes um, because we're starting to get really into the, the meaty, juicy parts of, of, a, of the fundamentals of a technological politics. Yeah. You know, going back to exactly what Morozov is talking about, the kind of criticism, the kind of analysis, the kind of critics that we need today, not the ones who bemoan the, the passing of the millennial lifestyle subsidy, not the ones who say, how do I make Uber a more humane company so that, so that all workers can work the way that Dara worked on that you know, PR stunt? No, 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 no. no. So join us on the Patreon feed to get more into that necessary theory uh, for analyzing the, the kind of um, material uh, conditions and labor operations and so on and so forth that we've been getting into in this episode and in other episodes. And I thank you all for listening again. Subscribe, find us there. Um, and until then, later. later. Thank you.